0: Hello, this is Andrew Harrison from the Doomsday Watch backroom team. We have a special event to announce. Doomsday Watch's first live Zoom is happening on Tuesday, the 26th of April at 7pm. In an exclusive stream for Patreon backers, Arthur will be welcoming
1: back our guest, Dr Alex Clarkson, to talk about what Russia's war on Ukraine has done to global stability, what might come next, and much more. Plus, we'll have time for your questions too. Search Patreon Doomsday Watch, sign up, and you'll get free access to this special event. We hope to see you there now, your regularly scheduled podcast.
0: I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. From before the start of this war, we were delighted to be in touch with Romeo Kokriatsky. He's a Ukrainian journalist. He's host of Ukraine Without the Hype podcast, and he's given us access to insights from on the ground in his home country. Romeo, welcome back. Thanks
1: once again for having me.
0: Uh, Romeo, let's just start off by talking about you. Tell me uh, where you are at the moment and what the situation is for you and your family. Sure. Um, at the moment, I am in the town of Vienza. It's a
1: provincial capital about 300 kilometers uh, southwest of Kiev. And uh, since the start of the war, Vienza has been relatively safe. It is on the Moldovan border. Or at least the region is, which means that there is a lot of territory the Russians would have had to get through to get to Vienna in the first place. Now that they've retreated from kind of the north and the northeastern portions of the country and they're refocusing more on the east and south, Vienna is even more safe. And as a result, life has basically resumed. The shops are open, the restaurants are open, the bars are open. It would almost feel like not a war if not for the soldiers in the streets and the air raid sirens and the curfew. Yeah. And luckily, um, myself and my wife, we're both here. Uh, we're completely fine. And my in-laws are uh, scattered around a bunch of villages, but they are also
0: at the moment also fine. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I saw that you posted on social media the other day that I think some of your in-laws had a a near miss, though.
1: Yeah. Well, specifically, um, it was my mother and father-in-law's house. Uh, They live in a small village about 50 kilometers um, northeast of Kiev, and my in-laws' village was one of the places they shelled. And while my mother-in-law and her son my brother-in-law and his family while they were able to leave a couple of days beforehand my father-in-law was very stubborn and decided to stay with the house right. however um he the the basically the night of the shelling he woke up around midnight um had a very bad feeling and went to hide in the cellar uh, and we're very lucky he did because when he came out in the morning half the house was gone my God. after that he um, he grew a bit of common sense and decided to join the rest of the family.
0: This this puts a- any uh, situations I might have with my in-laws into a whole new perspective. Yeah, at least they're not risking themselves <laughs> with mines. <laughs> um. Well, look, I'm I'm very happy to hear that your family are, are remaining safe. And uh, this is a a strange time to be talking because, in one way, we should be talking about Russia's failure to take Kiev. Russia's retreat from the north of of Ukraine, the fact that where you are in the far west of the country is almost certainly not going to be uh, targeted by Russian troops. But instead, of course, we have to talk about something else. We have to talk about war crime. We have to talk about genocide. And it's almost hard to know how to broach this subject with someone who is a citizen of the country that has been targeted. But perhaps we could just start by... Uh, you telling me, when did you become aware of what had been unfolding in those areas under Russian occupation?
1: Prior to the discovery of the atrocities, um, specifically in Bucha, um, which is a suburb uh, north of Kiev by Ukrainian troops, there had been rumors. Um, Obviously, these were rumors Rumors. Purely because the, these areas were under occupation, and it was rather hard to get information out of them. But there were rumors that the Russians were doing um, quite quite awful things, and I think most of us, uh, most Ukrainians, we'd kind of just hope that this was well. It's war; horrible things happen, and we would we hope that these rumors were just. I don't know. It, it feels ghoulish to say, but casualties of a typical war. Yeah. Um, of course, before even before the war started, even before the, the full-scale invasion began, there were reports, uh, I believe, by U.S. intelligence and also by Ukrainian intelligence that the Russians had lists of um, high-ranking uh, Ukrainian officials as well as Ukrainian public figures, journalists, and so on that they would try to work on. Uh, and again, we've we've heard these kinds of things before, and most people didn't pay it to mine, or we just assumed, well, yeah, of course they would have lists. Um, but at the time, no one really thought through what that actually meant in practice. Um, yeah. Once the uh, liberation of Bucha began and the Ukrainian military went in, suddenly all of that was thrown into really stark relief. The rumors, the very worst rumors, and even worse than that – were true. Um, we learned exactly how and what the Russians used these lists for. We learned why they had taken mobile crematoriums with them. To be honest, I'm still in shock. I'm not really sure what can prepare you for taking such a psychic trauma. And and I'm speaking as a person who doesn't have friends or relatives in these areas. Yeah. Um, for people who do, I, I can't even begin to comprehend the scale of the loss um, and and the the pain that they're going through right now.
0: Yeah. On one level, I, as you said, you know, prior to the invasion, it was possible to believe that this might happen. There were certain sorts of warnings. And of course, you can look at the conduct of the Russian military, for example, in Syria, the so called double tap bombings targeting uh, rescue workers and so on. So, on one level, you can say, well, we knew this was going to happen. But on another level, so many Russians. Themselves have Ukrainian close family. the idea of course, of this crazy war is somehow that ukraine is is just part of greater Russia that you're all one people uh you know this isn't about anymore about one or two bad apples or about uh, a crazy president doing something. This seems to be across the board the activities of the regular russian military how do How do you try to rationalize or understand that? unfortunately that aspect is quite
1: simple to do first off by reading what the Russians themselves are saying how the Russians themselves are justifying these acts and they are and um, I'm sure we'll we'll get into that in um, just a few minutes here and another thing is to of course draw historical comparisons this is to my deepest regret far from the first genocide um, and ethnic cleansing that this world has endured It's not even the first in Ukraine. We have a very deep historical memory of what we call the Holocaust by bullets. Um, Babanyar, which is the site of one of the the largest massacres of Jews by the Nazi forces uh, during World War II, is a huge park. Everyone goes there. Everyone knows its story. And a lot of the the atrocities uh, that Nazi Germany carried out, weren't carried out by, like, commando SS units or whatever. A lot of these were Wehrmacht units. I mean, just yeah. regular infantry, regular army soldiers. So we we know exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking that they have an order to fill out, and they don't really concern themselves with the consequences of that order. Oh, I'm sure um, there are some that may, in their heart of hearts, think this is wrong or not, but they still will carry out their orders Um, So unfortunately, understanding how they do the things they do and why they're doing the things they do is not so difficult. The hard part is figuring out how to stop them before they do it again.
0: Yeah. And talking about Ukraine's history, I think it's worth for our listeners who are not going to know very much about this, mentioning the Holodomor, I may have pronounced that badly, and that context as well.
1: Yeah, it's not even... so. In terms of why the Russians are doing this, and, and again, you can read their publications and they'll tell you exactly why, but for Ukrainians, this is far from the first time that we have been subject to Russian aggression to kill um, a good a good portion of us. The Holodomor, as you mentioned, was a uh, famine created uh, by the Stalin regime in the 1930s, Uh, Basically, Russia was attempting to quickly industrialize following the revolution and following um, Stalin's seizure of power. And as a result, the industrial cities in Russia needed a lot of food to uh, feed all of the peasants that they were carting in from the countryside to work in these factories. So they would force Ukrainians to harvest and ship all of this food, and then they would simply uh, ship it all to Russia – leaving basically none for the local population, um, which of course triggered a, a mass famine that killed millions upon millions of Ukrainians. And this kind of disregard for Ukrainian life is unfortunately something that we as Ukrainians are used to feeling. So for us, the fact that they want to kill us all is not exactly news. The fact that they want to... Subjugate us again, not news. That's that's basically been the history of Russian-Ukrainian relations this entire time. What yeah. is news um is the openly kind of genocidal language uh and, and the twisted justifications that they're now using. It's it's no longer brotherly nations or anything like that. It's it's um just straight up fascist rhetoric.
0: Yeah. We need to talk about that next, I think. So the there's lots of media footage of ordinary Russians who say casually, as as if it's just a statement of fact, that Ukraine is full of Nazis and what do you expect? So what's your view, Romeo? Are Russians um, disbelieving that these massacres are taking place or do they believe they're happening and they believe that it is justified because of this um, sort of fake uh, accusation that Ukraine is a Nazi country? I think... Like all
1: modern disinformation, it's all three. And yes, that is contradictory, but that is the state that modern dis- disinformation, ironic, not ironically, I guess, pioneered by Russia has led to. As I've said before, the point of disinformation is not to make people believe in a narrative, but make people believe that nothing is true and nothing can be trusted. So if you call Ukrainian Nazis, well, maybe that's true. If you say they've staged a massacre of their own, maybe that's true. If you say um, that you've done a just cleansing of the Nazis, maybe that's also true. No one can tell. And as a result, everything is permitted. Um, All of this is post facto justification for the aggression that russians have been heaping upon ukrainians for hundreds and hundreds of years their reasons may change but the material acts that they commit which is the suppression and eradication of ukrainian identity has stayed remarkably constant over the past i don't know 500 years 400 500 years so it doesn't really matter what they say because what they keep doing is the same
0: thing yeah as, as you mentioned uh, earlier on, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen in the modern era this kind of genocide. And yet, you know, there's still a debate in Europe about when and how you stop buying Russian energy and whether it might affect, you know, the GDP numbers. As somebody who's there on the ground in Ukraine, what's your view about what Western countries, what Ukraine's allies need to be doing? Obviously, I'm quite a bit biased.
1: Uh, and I feel like the world should be doing everything in in its power to prevent another genocide. I mean, it's 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 to me the question itself is strange because it's it's very similar to asking a Jew in Dachau, hey, what 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 do you think the rest of the world should be doing? Liberate me. I mean, stop the, the Nazis from killing us. Um, Or in this case, stop the Russians from killing us. Everything and anything in the world's power, including embargoes, sending us guns, I don't know. Literally everything to stop the Russians from doing what they're doing. I have, as a Ukrainian, I have really no greater priority um, than the complete cessation of Russians murdering me and my people. Um, that, That is the only concern I have. Uh, any economic questions or political questions or geopolitical questions, to be, to, to be honest, they matter very little. What, what does matter is the fact that um, the Russians have committed genocide, will commit genocide, and are planning to commit genocide uh, again. And stopping that, I think, is the only, is the only real um, concern or should be the only real concern of anyone who's on Ukraine's side.
0: Romeo, one of the outcomes of this invasion has been, I think, at the moment, f- over 4 million Ukrainians forced to flee their country to be refugees, largely in other neighbouring countries across Europe. Uh, here in the UK, this has become quite a controversial issue. The UK government has sort of outsourced the issue of hosting refugees to individuals, which sounds like a nice idea, people throwing open their homes to, to Ukrainians who need need a place to live but in practical terms almost no ukrainians have succeeded in coming here and finding a home here in the uk it's bureaucratic it's slow moving there seems to be a lot of a uh, lot of barriers to it so uh, if you'll forgive a parochial question what's your sense of how the uk is dealing with ukrainian refugees and and then perhaps we could talk more widely about the refugee question
1: so as you just said, um, the UK has, despite its significant military support, and I don't want to underplay how significant that military support has been to Ukraine, the kind of reputation of the United Kingdom has risen uh, quite a bit in the Ukrainian estimation, um, simply due to the military support that that Britain has provided us. Yeah. However, that support has not extended to uh, taking in Ukrainian evacuees whatsoever. A couple of, of personal anecdotes here. So one of my good friends, Maria Romanenko, is currently in the UK, and her partner is a British national. And they fled to the UK, I, th- I want to say, in the first weeks of the war. Right. And the process of getting her a visa to enter the country was, as her partner described, basically a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and the only reason that he was able to was he had um, connections within the home office and within the press to effectively shame the British government into giving her a uh, a visa to enter the country. Wow. And this was a journalist who had studied in the UK, wow. um, who had previously had a tourist visa to the UK, yeah. um, whose partner is a British national, And he had to twist arms at basically the highest level of government to get her a visa. Yeah. Um, Another story one of my other colleagues, another editor at the New Voice, Ewan McDonald, um, his partner is Ukrainian. He had the exact same problem getting his wife and child from Ukraine into the UK. They were stuck in Poland for about two weeks before he just started going to the press and um, pressing this question more or less constantly yeah. in order to, again, basically shame the government into uh, into taking um, these people in. And these are people with UK connections. Yeah. So you can imagine what's happening to people who have no connections whatsoever. I've seen yeah. um, at least three stories of Ukrainians that have given up waiting to get a visa. Um, I saw... A story of a small boy who has family in the uk be rejected as a refugee and these stories are repeating over and over and over and i cannot put it down to anything other than um the uk's policy towards refugees as a whole we've seen the home office under pretty Patel how it has treated refugees from all sorts of countries not just ukraine um, we saw how the Tory government treated the Windrush scandal. So it's not surprising. It is, of course, incredibly disappointing um, that this this rich, developed country, which seems to want to help us in so many ways, is draws the line at taking in the most vulnerable members of our society, evacuees who are leaving their home. And to be honest, um,
0: really discredits a lot of the other
1: support that they've been
0: providing. And then meanwhile, you, you find yourself, for example, uh, close to the border with Moldova, which if I'm not mistaken, I think is actually the poorest country in Europe. And they've taken hundreds of thousands as refugees. And and of course, Poland has taken millions. What's your w- sense of the wider picture in terms of how European countries are are dealing with refugees from, from Ukraine?
1: Quite frankly, right now, we don't know. Uh, Europe and Europeans, I, I don't want to say Europe. I want to say specifically Europeans. By and large, they have shown incredible compassion and empathy for Ukrainians, Uh, and the same thing with the British public. Everyone I've spoken to is incredibly supportive and is ready to help however they can at the drop of the hat. Their governments, however, are a different matter. Um, But even that compassion and empathy will start reaching some limits, not because these are mean or bad people, but simply because it is incredibly difficult to deal with an influx of millions of millions of people into these countries that are not built for it, that don't have the material reserves ready to do so on a permanent basis. Um, And I think in the next months, we're going to be seeing um, some tensions come out because of that. Of course, if they don't, I'll be incredibly happy to say that I was wrong and people are actually way better than I expect. Um, but unfortunately, in the real world, I, I'm afraid that these tensions will sooner or later start, start coming out.
0: Right. So returning to the conflict, the war is not over. And Russia may have been defeated around Kiev. But of course, that gives them the opportunity to focus their attentions in the south and east of the country. Mariupol remains under siege. What's your sense now trying to sort of think more about the kind of military situation of where this conflict is going. There's been talk about whether it gives Russia an advantage, they can focus their activity in one area, but presumably there's some advantage to the Ukrainian military as well to be able to focus its defense in that area.
1: One of the issues that we are running into now, uh, as the war is shifting from kind of a uh, defensive phase where we were trying to prevent them from taking Uh, major cities from taking the capital to points where we now need to liberate areas in the east and south that have been occupied, and of course get ready to um, counter-push the uh, planned Russian offensive in the Donbass. What this means is that the kind of weapons that we've been using so far are not entirely suited for offensive duties, because obviously pushing forward with infantry when your enemy has tanks is... A rather risky procedure, uh, yeah. which is why you see the Ukrainian government now calling for uh, greater uh, supplies of heavy armor, including, like, tanks, armored fighting vehicles, and so on. Yeah. And if Ukraine is not able to kind of make use of the momentum that we've gained by routing the Russians in the, in the north, uh, then there is a good chance the Russians will be able to uh, settle and dig in and draw out this war for... God knows how long. Um, Russian money is still running low. They can't repair a lot of their things. But as we've seen for the past eight years uh, in the Donbass, they can very easily hold positions and just do sporadic shelling for a very long time um, to effectively prevent any sort of infantry uh, push for liberation. So what we're looking at at the moment is – how do I put this? kind of a betting round in a poker game where if ukraine's allies start supporting us and giving us more chips we'll be able to bet the whole pot and with any luck overwhelm the russians however if we don't get that support then we can only stake what we have and the russians still outnumber us in men
0: and material and given the revelations of the war crimes and the sobering thought that there will be more of these to come it feels all the more the case that ukraine can't afford to to settle U- ukraine has to remove the russian military from its territory what's your view on that because it ultimately you know there is a peace track ongoing and sometimes Uh, countries have to swallow very bitter pills if they want to end a war. How do you feel about that difficult question?
1: I think I saw a tweet the other day that that perfectly sums up um, my feelings on this matter. And that is, should France have just signed a peace treaty and let the Vichy half live in order to gain peace? Make no mistake, we're not dealing with a quote-unquote normal aggressor state. We're not dealing with something like, I don't know, Iran or... Uh, Iraq, um, a a, a country that, while not free or democratic, is nonetheless not insane. Um, I think fascism is the ultimate expression of insanity in the form of a nation state. And the Russian state is fascist. It is not markedly different from Nazi Germany at all. That is not an exaggeration. That is what is observable based on Russia's rhetoric, actions, um, and policies. As a result, there is no peace possible with a fascist state that will not later embolden that fascist state. If Ukraine does not defeat Russia militarily, we will not have peace. We will have a period of rearmament before Russia launches another attack, this time not just on Ukraine, but on all of Europe. That is, of course, the ultimate goal of all fascist states. They want to expand ad infinitum until they have dominion over the world. And that is exactly what Russia is aiming to do, not now, but down the road. Russia has to be stopped militarily now. Their military needs to be reduced to nothing and the Putinist regime, needs to be overthrown or removed from power, because otherwise we will be facing a world war. If Russia is not halted now, then this this conflict will grow and metastasize, um, as conflicts so often do. There is no negotiated route to peace aside from um, Putin's circle going to The Hague. Uh, that that is the only outcome that will lead to a lasting world peace, and not simply a lull before the next assault.
0: I don't feel there's much I can uh, say after that statement because it, it feels so compelling, so so true, but also very very sobering for for people, including in Britain, who you know we may feel good about the fact that we've supported. Ukraine with certain weapons, but ultimately, of course, we don't face any of the direct impacts of, of this war. you know, a bit of discomfort in our fuel bills is is hardly the same thing. Um, so it feels as if the the necessity, as you've said, for Ukraine to fight this war, to remove Russia from its territory, to stop what is un, undeniably, I agree with you, a fascist government trying to continue its expansion. That feels undeniable now. Um, But that also feels as though that's a long job. This is not something uh, that is going to be achieved in weeks or months. Is that your sense?
1: Unfortunately, in the past, um, I think, couple of weeks, that is the conclusion that I've also come to. When the full-scale invasion began, we all hoped it would be over in two weeks. Okay, a month. Okay, a month and a half. Um, Well, it's been a month and a half and there's no end in sight. And um, I am afraid that this is going to stretch for months and months. I don't believe it is going to stretch into a really extended years long conflict simply because. From what I've been able to read, the Russian economy and financial situation does not permit the Russian military to continue operating at this intensity um, for more than another two or three months. So at some point, they physically will run out of cash. And of course, they can print rubles. But at that point, they're risking hyperinflation and the dissolution of Russia anyway, right? So I'm incredibly, incredibly hopeful. And this is just pure optimism <laughs> um, that by August, perhaps the war will be over and the world will be radically different. Um, but I'm not excluding that it might take another year or nearly a year at this point.
0: Yeah. Well, it, if you can find cause for optimism amidst everything that's happened, I think that's that's sort of testament to the human spirit. Uh, and what about finally about Russia? You know, Russia of course, most of Russia's population are to some extent imprisoned in this system. I, I don't mean literally, but in a system of mass disinformation, it's a place where the small number that uh, find the courage to protest are arrested immediately, mistreated. Of course, you know Navalny thrown in jail for, for, for I forget, more than 10 years, I think. Um, can you see that Russia itself might be able to move past this phase? Or is it sort of condemned to repeat this kind of cycle of authoritarianism, nationalism, and arguably fascism? I mean, that's the big question,
1: isn't it? I think a lot of this is down just to the Russian people. So whatever happens, if, if Ukraine is successful in winning this war and the Putin regime falls, the Russians will be given a second chance in 30 years to rebuild their nation. Um, We've seen what they did with their first chance. They basically aped a a poor man's version of Stalinism without the ideology. And a big reason, and again, from the Ukrainian perspective, a big reason for why that is is because Russia, unlike most of the rest of the Western world, never reckoned with its colonial history, was never taken into account um, for its imperialist acts, and... Considered its imperial history to be something laudable, the Russian psyche is still so closely tied to empire that allows them to build these politics of grievances where they can put themselves as this victim oppressed by the West while conveniently ignoring the fact that they still have a land empire that has conquered and assimilated dozens of minority groups yeah um to the point where these minority groups not only do these minority groups make a very significant chunk of the Russian military, but these minority groups don't have their own ethnic identity anymore. That ethnic identity has been successfully stripped from them um and they just consider themselves Russians, even though their people in not too long ago were literally um forced to be this way, yeah. Uh, So Russia needs to really reckon with the consequences of its imperial past. It needs to stop viewing its imperial past as an era of greatness. As long as it does, the Russian mindset will not change, and there will always be a longing to return to that supposed era. I'm, I'm of course, not hopeful. History has not given me any examples of Russia (laughs) um wanting to do this but of course anything can happen <laughs> the future is not set in stone and i'm since incredibly hopeful that um russians if they get this second chance that they will finally either be made or choose to really deal with um what this idea of greatness for the russian nation really needs
0: yeah and of course it's a nation that has greatness Culturally, scientifically, as in so many ways it doesn't need greatness as a land empire stretching from you know one end of the Eurasia to the other. Romeo, if someone had told me five years ago that the country that will come to represent the fight for democracy and freedom will be Ukraine, I I might not have believed them. So we are currently looking at Ukraine as the beacon of liberty, of uh, the concept of freedom. And, and that in itself is remarkable. Uh, how does that, if we try to sort of leave on a note of pride and positivity in your country, Romeo, how, how do you feel about how Ukraine has been transformed in the world's eyes?
1: I think that finally this old trope that Ukraine is this horribly backwards corrupt country is is finally broken. Um, I think people have seen that actually Uh, Ukraine is a pretty well-developed, pretty democratic and modern European state. Um, And I'm pretty proud of that because we've worked hard over the past eight years to turn it into that, to break the chain of being just another post-Soviet kleptocracy. And yes, we still have problems. Um, Yes, we're not ideal, but I think there's no place on earth that is ideal. However, the war if it's done anything is unify all ukrainians not only in the sense that we are ukrainian but in the sense that we are in large parts european we we no longer have to say oh um one day we'll go to europe no we are europe we are europe and i think it's time for the rest of the world to reckon if they are European enough to join
0: Ukraine and to support us and not the other way around. Brilliant. Thank you, Romeo, so much for joining us again on Doomsday Watch. Uh, Please stay safe and please come back soon. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes thanks for listening we'll see you next time